0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we had better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plates to pay control troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Succinise through do their lies, and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to so grab a shovel and dig. Over the last few years, there's been growing interest in the idea of some sort of right to deletion as a remedy for potential privacy issues, with the most well-known of these being the EU's concept of the right to be forgotten, formalized as the right to erasure in the GDPR. I've written about many of these issues for a few years now, uh, in particular with how the right to be forgotten often conflicts with free speech rights and how the rule can be and uh, often is uh, abused to try to hide important information from the public. However, it has continued to catch on in various policymaking circles, and we're seeing it used in more and in very different ways, often without... Careful thought as to the overall impact of these, you know, uh, deletion rights or, or demands. Uh, that's why I was so interested to read a recent paper from University of New Hampshire School of Law Professor Tiffany Lee, entitled "Algorithmic Destruction." that looks at how this concept of data deletion uh, is being used as a privacy remedy and how it's impacting algorithms and AI-trained models. It raises numerous questions while making it clear that policymakers are kind of rushing blindly forward, uh, perhaps without thinking through the impact of these rules. Uh, So, Tiffany, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, happy to be here.
0: Cool. So... Before we get into all the issues around data deletion and algorithmic destruction, uh, can we start with the idea that you raise in your paper of the algorithmic shadow uh, and what what that means and what it is?
1: Sure, I'd love to chat about that. So this is something I've been thinking a lot about. I've been really concerned about this idea that you know one of the main privacy rights we have is this right to ask someone to delete your data. I mean I think that's fantastic. Um, But the issue is now that we have so much, you know, machine learning uses in every sector of society, we get a lot of situations where some company or some organization might get data through improper means, and then they might use that data to build a machine learning algorithm. Um, And when you ask that company to delete the data, that doesn't change the fact that whatever algorithm or system they've created using that data has already used that data. Right? So there's still always some imprint of your data on that system, regardless of whether or not they delete the data from their initial data set. Um, and that's a little troubling to me. That feels a little weird to me. Um, it's something that I think people don't really talk about, the shadow that kind of persists um, on the eventual algorithm based on whatever data was put in.
0: And and you talk in the paper, you talk about Compass, right? Which is sort of this famous system or infamous system, I guess I should say that, that was that is you know used by by judges around like sentencing decisions and stuff, and, and there are all sorts of problems with that. Do you want to talk a little bit about about that uh, software and some of the issues around it?
1: Yeah, so Compass is this um, a, a piece of software that has got into a lot of trouble. Um, It's just one example of times when in the criminal justice system, we use types of algorithms to make decisions, decisions on, for example, how long a criminal sentence should be, or decisions on things like which neighborhoods we should put more police in. So we use a lot of existing data, um, and then we find different patterns and create algorithms that tell us, you know, this community needs more police presence, or this person who offended once might be more likely to re-offend. And thus should deserve a higher sentence. So I mentioned Compass, but this is just one of many types of these programs where we use a lot of data, then we use machine learning um, and artificial intelligence and create some sorts of systems that may or may not be extremely biased um, and problematic.
0: And and I mean, this is interesting, and, and I, I, I'm assuming most of the people listening to this understand this already. But, but just to, to clarify and, and, and make this point clear, you know, the way that today most machine learning AI systems work is that you're feeding it, you know, a bunch of data to sort of create a model. Um, and there, there may be some underlying, you know, model building to start with, but the idea is that the eventual tool, the eventual model is really designed by the system itself based on the on the, the data, right? And, and oftentimes that means that, you know, the people who are, you know, the people who are using or who, you know, have created this algorithm couldn't even tell you why it's making some of the decisions that it's making because it's just, you know, that's that's what it says based on the data. Um, but that creates a problem if, you know, the data that you fed it has, has its own sort of level of bias or some other kind of underlying problem, you know, whether or not that data was acquired, you know, Illegally, Or they shouldn't have access to that data or, you know, whatever else the problem might be. All of that then feeds into the model, even if the model itself doesn't directly have the data. And that's kind of the point that, that you're getting to with this idea of the algorithmic shadow is that, you know, the... You know the impact of that data, even if the data is separate from it, is still there and can have much wider impact, depending on how those algorithms are used. In in the case of Compass in terms of like sentencing decisions, or in some of these others about like you know where you put police or or, or whatever else it might be. There's so many different algorithms impacting our lives these days. Um, so let's let's take that to the to the next level then when. You talk about these ideas of of data deletion and data disgorgement, or or however it's it's framed. Um, there are these remedies out there now that that policymakers are, you know, arguing that companies should, um, you know, get rid of data that they've they've accessed or that they you know that they've gotten hold of illegally. However, however you want to frame that, um, what is happening there? What's what's kind of the 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 current state of things when it comes to data deletion uh, related to algorithms?
1: So I think we have to separate this into two different kinds of remedies. Um, There's one existing remedy in a lot of data protection and privacy laws that's simply data deletion, right? You have the right to request that your data as a user be deleted from whatever company's store of data they have. Um, We see that in the GDPR, CCPA, a variety of different privacy laws and in, for example, FTC enforcement, uh, the Federal Trade Commission often uh, tells companies that they have to delete data that they gathered improperly. So that's really common data deletion. Uh, but what I think is a little new is this idea of you know, algorithmic destruction or algorithmic deletion. And that's the concept that not only should the company that got data in a bad way delete that data, but they should delete any models or any machine learning systems or algorithms that they develop based on that data. Um, And that's pretty huge. I think that's a really major step.
0: Yeah. So, so let's think through that. So, you know, is the argument that like, if you are training, uh, you know, a machine learning system on, you know, huge amounts of data, because usually that's, that's where you get the better results in theory, right? You have huge uh, collections of data, Um, you know, is the argument that if, you know, one tiny sliver of that data was improperly collected, that the entire model should then be, you know, destroyed as well? Is that, is that part of the argument that goes into this?
1: That might be. On the extreme end, that's kind of what they're saying, right? Um, that if you, for example, if you as a company um, collect the data of, you know, Tiffany Lee as a user, um, and then later you found out that you didn't have the right to collect that data, Um, I could then ask or request for some reason that the company delete anything they created using my data. Um, And that can mean just destroying all the algorithms and every work product that they've made. Um, It could also mean what some people have talked about as sort of machine unlearning. So rolling back the model um, to a point before that data was added and then retraining the machine learning model based on a new set of data that doesn't include the you know, improperly collected data.
0: And and so, I mean, you could go down all different kinds of, of routes here, but like, you know, as an example, right, uh, you know, Facebook, let's use Facebook as an example because everybody thinks about Facebook all the time. You um, I mean meta. You know, <laughs> sorry, yeah. I, I I can't decide if I'm comfortable with calling it meta <laughs> or not. But anyways, <laughs> you know, they have, Uh, you know, machine learning AI system that is looking at, you know, whatever activity they can collect on me when I use Facebook, which is rarely, or when I'm surfing the web and there are Facebook bugs all over the place. So they sort of know some of what I'm doing, uh, whether I like that or not. Um, And then they use that to train stuff. Now, if I were able say under the GDPR or possible under CCPA, which is California's privacy law for those who are not (laughs) deep in the weeds on this stuff, uh, which has been passed for a few years, but people are still figuring out what it actually means. Uh, Then, you know, if I could demand that Facebook delete my data, um, then the the question is, could I also demand that they delete any algorithm that they trained on my data or have to like re- jigger the, the, the algorithm so that, you know, whatever it has learned was learned without my data. Is that, is that part of the argument?
1: I think that's the next step. Um, so in my paper, I talk about this general idea, algorithmic destruction. And it's something that the Federal Trade Commission has really just started trying as an enforcement tool in the past few years, um, ever since, you know, spoiler alert, Cambridge Analytica, um, which again, is another <laughs> big Facebook privacy debacle. Um, so they Meta. just started really trying this, right? Um, and that's—it's one thing to have algorithmic dist- algorithmic destruction as an enforcement tool that an agency can do. It's another thing to have it be a private right that in, any individual right. could demand. Um, that would be huge, um, and I'm not sure how that would play out uh, in in practical terms.
0: And, and in the paper, you talk a little bit about the FTC, a few examples of the FTC using this as, a, as an enforcement mechanism from, from the agency side. Do you, you want to talk a little bit about a few of those just so people know that, the, you know, what are the examples of where the FTC is, is using this as a remedy?
1: Sure. So the first time the FTC brought this up was in the Cambridge Analytica case. And if you remember, this was when um, we found that Facebook had been allowing a third party developer, um, Cambridge Analytica, a large analytics company, um, to improperly collect and use the data of you know millions of Facebook users. And this resulted in a pretty large FTC settlement um, because this was not the first time Facebook had violated a past consent decree, you know, had violated promises they made to the FTC, really terrible, et cetera. just kind of par for the course for Facebook slash meta. Um, and the FTC said that one of the things they had to do, was not just delete the data, but also delete um, the models or the work product developed with the data. So they mentioned that, um, but it didn't really pick up steam until I think relatively recently. And this might be because, you know, if you mention something one time, it's not as big a deal. Uh, But now we've had at least three cases in which the FTC has tried to use what they call algorithmic disgorgement as an enforcement tool. Um, another one of these cases was with Ever or Ever Album, um, which was a photo application. They had some sort of facial recognition feature, um, and the FTC found that they were, you know, improperly collecting and using data. And one thing they asked that company to do was not only delete the data, but delete the models and algorithms that were developed with that data. So that's pretty big shift. Uh, the most recent use of this was, I believe, just maybe a couple months ago. Um, And this was the case of Kerbo and WW International, formerly known as Weight Watchers. Uh, They had been marketing an app uh, for children, Uh, children's weight loss or fitness or something. So ethically already pretty questionable, (laughs) problematic. Um, But more problematic was that they were collecting data of children as young as I think eight years old was what the FTC found. Yeah. And then using it to target advertisements about things like, you know, weight loss apps, um, and this violates uh, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act or COPPA, and, and just you know, general privacy laws. So the FTC said that they have to delete the data, um, but they also have to, again, delete the work product. So the algorithms, the models, whatever they had developed based on that data, and here it's probably things like, you know, algorithms for, you know, ad targeting or something like that.
0: And I mean, so has there been any reaction to that? I mean beyond your paper, obviously um you know, have people talked about that or 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 has ww international or or whatever they're called uh, have they said anything about like what they're doing in response to to the FTC um enforcement?
1: I haven't seen any statements, and this is maybe because. Um, companies don't often make large statements about, you know, when they've been sure. hugely fined by regulators. Um, but I think it is interesting. There hasn't been as much conversation as I thought there would be. Um, but that might be because, you know, people who are listening to this podcast are probably among the few people who really care about these issues. Right. The general population <laughs> does not really care about whatever algorithmic disgorgement might be. Um, so there's not right. much general media attention. Um, but among, you know, tech policy folks, right, I think there's been some discussion. Um, but I also think we're just kind of waiting. Like, we want to see, like, what, what's actually going to happen? Are companies going to be so upset that they try to fight back? Is this going to do anything on a practical level? Um, and is this going to expand? Because if this goes yeah. past the FTC, there could be so many applications that would really change a lot of, you know, computing and use of AI.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a whole bunch of questions there. I want to go back for a second. Um, before I dig into some of the, the questions that I'm sort of adding to my mental list here, like the, the the Cambridge Analytica situation is is an interesting one. And it's, you know, I think it's one that um, is instructive in a lot of ways, but also kind of highlights some of the challenges here. I, I also think it's, it's sort of widely misunderstood. Not that I am defending <laughs> uh, Cambridge Analytica by any means or defending Facebook and sort of how they handle it. But if you go back and you look at sort of the steps that happened that led to Cambridge Analytica doing what, what it did and like Facebook's role in enabling that, it's, you know, a lot of people like to paint it as this sort of obviously evil, obviously nefarious, privacy-violating uh, situation. And yet, I think the reality is that there is a a sort of logical, non-nefarious progression. It did turn out to eventually be sort of a very nefarious scenario and a very problematic one, Um, but it was one in which, you know, Facebook was actually struggling for a while and trying to figure out how to compete with other um, social media apps that were out there that were actually in some ways more open and you know, part of Facebook's decision was to build itself out as a platform the, the, a term that has now lost all meaning because of because of other fights that we often often talk about. But they viewed it as like the way to succeed. And, and I think was a reasonable take and one that I will confess to having advocated for Facebook and for other uh, large web companies to do, was to sort of open up their, their system for app developers to build interesting apps on the basis of the social graph that, that Facebook had had built. Um, and therefore, there is a, a way to look at it and say, oh, you know, they were trying to make their product more useful as a sort of infrastructure layer play uh, and and that enabled all kinds of apps. They eventually moved away from that. But part of that was that they were effectively exposing all sort of information about who your friends and family were to anyone who could get access to the API. Um, and I don't think anyone was necessarily thinking through sort of the privacy implications of that at the time. Not Again, not for nefarious reasons, but because it just, it didn't even occur to people at the time, you know, being able to access that kind of information was was seen as a good thing. And if you could build that into other applications that actually seemed at the time, uh, like, like a smart move in retrospect, we all know that it, it could, could and would, and, you know, will be abused. Um, but that to me raises all sorts of questions about this as well, because you have a scenario in which, there were non nefarious reasons for putting all of this together and setting all of this up, um, and you could see where if there were sort of you know machine learning models that were built off of these non nefarious setups, um, to then come in years later in some cases and say you need to destroy all of that, that could have huge impact, not just on like this particular situation or like okay yeah you know you had this one bad actor. Um or maybe a few bad actors who who abused the system and did bad things with it. but if that then takes down like much of the basis of everything else that the company is doing and and you know, if you could sort of use that to effectively tell Facebook, you know, you can no longer recommend stuff based on your algorithm because your algorithm is is illegal, you know, loosely phrased, that would be huge, and I think would be problematic even if you dislike and distrust Facebook as I tend to do. Yeah. So I, I, I don't, I, yeah. Like what, what, what do you, what I'm sort of working through this live. Uh, like what, what do you, what do you think? I mean, what, what's, what do you have a similar concern?
1: I definitely do. Um, I mentioned in the paper that one thing I'm concerned about is the impact on smaller players. I mean, this is something mm-hmm. that's pretty common, right? A lot of our you know, proposed social media regulations seem really fantastic when applied to Facebook and Google and so on. But then I worry about, you know, what's a small startup going to do if they're asked to delete all their algorithms and retrain every algorithm they've ever used um, because, you know, one person's data was improperly collected? I don't know. And that's something where I really want to see. You know, we've seen some computer science work on this, but I want to see computer science, but also economics, right? Like, I want Mm -hmm. to know what's the practical cost to businesses if they have to do this, um, what's the cost of the market if this is something that becomes more widespread? because um, like I mentioned, it's not just the FTC. Like imagine this being something that you have a right to in terms of like criminal justice, right? Like what mm-hmm. if this is something where similar to how you can't bring up certain kinds of evidence in court, um, maybe you know some forensic analytics company or something can no longer use collected data to create the sorts of you know algorithms that we use for criminal justice. That's a big impact too. I don't think we've talked about that enough, um, so I'm a little. I think it's an interesting topic. I think it's an interesting idea um, from a privacy standpoint. You know, I, I love having more privacy rights for people and more remedies going back against bad actors. But I'm also a bit concerned about this problem. You know, like Facebook in the beginning, yeah, didn't you know? Arguably, didn't fully know what was going to go on. Um, people have talked about the fact that Cambridge Analytica, you know, that whole debacle. There was no real data breach, right? that Cambridge Analytica used, you know, proper third-party access. Um, They use, you know, authorized access to get the data. What they did with the data then people found questionable. But like you said, it's something similar to what other people do with this form of data. Like a a research university getting a lot of Facebook data to find interesting sociological insights is doing the same thing as Cambridge Analytica pretty much. Um, So, you know, I don't know how to regulate against one but not the other. Now, that's the big question, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, even the way you, you're describing that, like I'm sort of going back and forth where it's like it feels like, you know, in the criminal justice scenarios, right? I mean, then you're talking about like people's actual lives. And so like my gut reaction is like, oh, that's really bad. Like we shouldn't – that, you know, that shouldn't be allowed. Like they, sh- they shouldn't be able to use those algorithms at all. Uh you know, in that way, if there's there's problematic data in there because because of the the really clear impact of it, but but somehow like my gut feels a little bit differently when it comes to to other you know when it's not about criminal justice, and I don't know that I can square that in my head as to why I feel differently about one and not the other, um, and I'm not sure what to do about that.
1: Yeah, I think it's really tough. Um, I think there's also people always talk about, you know, the creepiness, right? Like a lot of privacy yeah. people talk about things like, "Oh, that just feels creepy. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people who actually hate that um, because they say mm-hmm. that relying on this, you know, intrinsic creepiness uh, means that we only really focus on things that we feel are important. Um, whereas right. a lot of other people who are, you know, don't have their voice listened to maybe have other issues that aren't heard because we don't find them creepy. So that's, it's right. tough. Um, But I do think there is some difference between things like thinking about your data being used to target an advertisement to you, which is annoying sometimes, but helpful sometimes, uh, versus thinking about things like, you know, your data being used. um, I'll just give like the worst example I could think of, which is very practical (laughs) and real. Um, So, for example, you know, Clearview AI, this huge company Mm -hmm. that's doing a lot of facial recognition, collecting, I think, billions of face photos, right, all around the world, from various sources, legal or illegal, right, Um, creating facial recognition um, algorithms and technology, um, some of which can then be used by, say, authoritarian governments um, to do things like look for political protesters or plan drone strikes. So in that circumstance, maybe you would say, you know, you as an individual, if you had your photo included in this facial recognition system, maybe you don't want that. Right? Like there's kind of a feeling like I don't want to be a part of that as a, you know, as an individual. Um but what do I do? Right? Like what's my right? How do I get out of that system so that there's no lasting imprint of my face on a system that, you know, murders innocent protesters. Um right. and that's kind of like the far-fetched extreme, but it's kind of a reality, right? And I think that's yeah. something where some new types of privacy rights and remedies might come into play and they might be helpful there.
0: Yeah. Um Again, lots of different thoughts are brought up by this the the you know I think it's interesting the 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 discussion on like you know what feels creepy um, and it reminds me actually of going back to the sort of content moderation debate, you know, famously, um, Facebook's original content policy people said the original you know very early on, the original content policy for Facebook was does it make us feel icky, which is sort of the the you know, Equivalent of is this creepy, um, and and what they quickly realized was like that's that's not that's not a good standard, right? Like for a variety of reasons. One, it it builds in the biases of of whoever is making that decision because what they make feels icky may be different than what other people feel is icky in both directions, right? There there are, there are things that that you know um, you know that that could cause problems and. Could be could not, and so they very quickly realized that like the icky standard is not is not one to use, and that they have to formalize a policy. And then you discover all of the the incredible issues that i've <laughs> I've spent years discussing on TechDirt of like trying to formulate such a policy, which is just an impossible task. And I'm kind of seeing now the parallel to that in the privacy world, where like I think a lot of people treat it in the same way that Facebook treated the is it icky with is it creepy. Um, and that's it's a natural response, but again, it's not a, a workable one and certainly not a scalable one. And then it, once you try and formalize it, which is what people are trying to do with things like the GDPR and the CCPA, you suddenly discover that like the, the content moderation policies at these large platforms, it's, it's a much more difficult task than anyone thinks. And, and as soon as you think you've written out the rules, someone is going to show you an edge case. Uh, and I hate to call them edge cases because that implies that there's only a few of them on the edge, whereas the reality often is, is that almost every case you deal with is in some ways an edge case. So now going even further, sorry, I'm just, I'm wandering down a down a tangent road here. Um, you know, in the situation with content moderation where you have content policies and you have all these edge cases what you have, and there was a great, and I've pointed this out before, there's a great Radio Lab podcast a few years ago that went deep on like Facebook and how they adjust their content policies. And I thought it was really instructive because they sort of walk you down this road of here's a policy, this seems clear. Here's an example like, oh, wait, this doesn't quite fit into something. Okay, we need to rewrite the policy. Okay, here's our new policy. Oh, here's a case that doesn't quite fit into the new policy. Oh, we got to rewrite the policy. Um, and I thought that was really, really useful and really, really instructive. But when it comes to the privacy stuff, it's not so much the companies doing it and constantly being able to adjust. Rather, it is often done by law and regulation or administrative agency rulemaking. Um, And that is not as easy to adjust and to iterate as quickly as companies are iterating on content policy. And so I worry then that because of the sort of slowness of policymaking um, that this becomes really, really problematic in the long run as it relates to privacy. Does that make sense?
1: Kind of. I think there. it's interesting. I haven't thought about this in this specific way, but you're right. There are a lot of parallels between content moderation and privacy policy, policies internally in companies, right? And decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is true that a lot of privacy, you know, work from the company's side is kind of sometimes reactive to regulation. Right. Whereas obviously for various reasons, you know, section 230 being one of them um, we have less of that pressure in terms of content moderation. Um, So that's, it is an interesting point. Um, And it is something that maybe is also accelerated by things like the GDPR. Right. Um, Right. Because previously our privacy laws where I think, you know, they definitely did exist, but they were not this stringent and there wasn't this much discussion Uh, Maybe it's also just changing norms, right? We have so many news articles every day about another privacy violation. Uh, People think crazy things about what Facebook is able to do. So maybe things are changing in terms of privacy um, that do make it harder for companies now because the policy landscape, you're right, is slow, um, but it's moving. The federal privacy law is eventually going to come into existence at some point. And before that, states are passing all sorts of laws.
0: Right. Um, yeah, (laughs)
1: yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, and it just, it just seems, seems really messy. And and you mentioned earlier, right, you know, this idea of like, trying to so much, and, and this is, again, is sort of true across the board of any kind of regulations around, around internet policy, so much of the, the regulatory policy is in reaction to, you know, five or six large companies realistically, right? But don't take into account what that means for the smaller companies and the the competitive upstarts and 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 whatnot. And we've already seen that like with the GDPR, for example, where you know the GDPR was you could argue, and I think it's, it's fair to say, was in many ways a reaction to things that that Facebook and Google had been doing and were, were seen at the time certainly as an attempt to rein in some of their ability to make use of our data in, in such ways. And the actual impact of it, I think, is now pretty clear was that it made it really difficult to next to impossible for startups in that space to to compete. And actually, if you look at sort of like the market share of the advertising, data-driven advertising market, for Facebook and Google have gone up in response to the GDPR as opposed to having gone down. Um, and you know, there are different responses to that as well, but I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, if these kinds of policy changes are going to lead to a similar sort of thing. Again, you mentioned in your paper, this idea that like, you know, if smaller companies even, you know, I, if well, one if they're sort of forced to to discard an algorithm trained on data that's problematic in some way, that could be extremely costly. But even further from that, just I don't want to say chilling effect because it's not it's not chilling effect in the same way that we use it with speech, but similar. Um, you know, will smaller companies even bother to create these algorithms or train a machine learning system? If the fear is that any sliver of the data that they're using is problematic or could be seen as problematic down the road, now there's an argument that like they should be better about you know vetting the data that they're using up front. But again, when you get to the the um, Cambridge Analytica situation, that was one where at the time it didn't seem like anything was wrong, um, and so I wonder about just the sort of chill on innovation in general from these kinds of rules. Um, and again, I'm, I'm sort of rambling on, but, but do you have any thought on, on where this goes?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely am concerned about this as well. I mean, I mentioned what Cambridge Analytica did as a private analytics firm. It's not that different than what like a research university might do. Um, and that's right. a little bit concerning because I think most of us would agree we want more you know, academic research, right? We want more public research out there. But most of us would also agree we don't really want to be manipulated in terms of like who we're voting for, right Um not that it was ever shown that Cambridge Analytica successfully manipulated elections, but it's right. another question. So I think that's an issue um and it's something I thought about for a long time as well. Uh, I worked for a few years at the Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit that runs Wikipedia or manages Wikipedia and other
0: you know <laughs> projects
1: like that. Yeah. Nobody runs Wikipedia um, but it's It's something that I think I see a lot with organizations like Wikipedia, uh, Wikimedia, um, or other nonprofits, right, as well as just small startups. Um, It's expensive and costly to comply with the GDPR nowadays. Um, In the past, we had a little more flexibility um, with the privacy shield and so on. Um, But now you have to be ready to comply with, say, a data request or request for deletion at any time. You have to be able to prove your compliance, which means hiring people, or getting third-party consultants and so on, getting your data mapping, doing your data impact assessments, and all of that. Um, and you know, algorithmic destruction is another thing that could be added onto that. Um, so, one way to get around that maybe is just having things in the law, right? If we make mm-hmm. this a matter of law, having some protection, so you know, something like a company that's under this size or less than this revenue, you know, would not be affected, or maybe some sliding so some scale. Sort of like- Yep,
0: safe harbor kind of scenario
1: yeah kind of a a safe harbor type of deal um i think we've seen this in a few laws that try to regulate social media i want to say an australian law last year do you remember this um i think it was a news publishing law that affected google right yeah
0: yeah there were well there have been a few where i mean um uh, so I'm not sure which one you're talking about there was there was the the news publisher law in terms of like aggregators having to pay news publishers that was written somewhat explicitly to only impact Google and Facebook yeah I think um, that's the
1: one I'm thinking about there was a very explicit yeah. carve out right um, that basically yeah. made it so if unless you were Google you were not going to have to deal with this law <laughs> right. um, which, which is the, so that's one way to do it right
0: I don't, I don't know that you would be allowed to do that in the U.S., right? The, the bills of attainder are an issue, but yes, yes, there are ways to to carve things out or or to structure. I, I have general issues with with ones that try and structure on size because how you define size it also creates all sorts of weird, you know, unexpected or unintended consequences. Um, but yes, there are there are ways that this could be done. So sorry, go on.
1: No, no, definitely. I mean. You know, just going back to Wikipedia, I love Wikipedia, um, but there are a lot of users who access Wikipedia, um, fewer users who edit Wikipedia, but still pretty large, right? It's one of the most visited websites in the world. So if you were just regulating based on size, um, a nonprofit with very limited resources like Wikimedia might fall under that. Um, And I don't think that's a great idea either. So it's, I don't know what the best way to do it is. Um, I mean, right now this is the FTC just using this enforcement tool. based on their own choices. So they could voluntarily choose not to use it against smaller companies if they wish, right? That's something that we can see. Um, But if this, you know, is in, um, gets, this this remedy spreads in different parts of law, um, if it becomes like a right that you can ask for, say under the GDPR or the CCPA, um, then that becomes a little harder uh, to deal with, especially for those smaller companies.
0: Yeah. Right. I mean, it's one thing to rely on sort of regulator discretion, um, and, and hope that they, you know, they wouldn't abuse that. Um, but yeah, if it becomes sort of a private right, I mean we, we, you know, we've discussed and I sort of discussed a little bit in the intro this idea that like the private right of the, the right to be forgotten aspect of the GDPR, like we see it abused. I mean, we have this one guy in the uk who keeps trying to get our stories deleted from google (laughs) Uh, and you know um and it's funny because we just you know write about it again but we write we're not writing about the thing the thing that he did 20 years ago that he doesn't want mentioned we're writing about the thing that he just did to try and delete our old articles about the thing that he did 20 years ago um but you know this all gets to like you know, the, the issue that I think we, we don't have a really good conception of, of privacy itself um, and sort of what it means. And I've discussed this in the, in the past on the podcast and on the, and on the site. Um, and so I think that leads to sort of weird attempts to, to figure out remedies, right? Because we don't, and I think it all goes back to exactly what you said earlier, which is like, most people do view it as kind of like, well, this feels icky, therefore it must be wrong. And that's not a great Situation either because then you also get these weird situations where you know conceptually and technically they look identical whether it's like academic researchers you know or um, or or other you know beneficial uses of this of this kind of data uh, versus uh, ones that that are clearly problematic um, and the fact that we don't have a good conception of what privacy means or what it means to violate someone's privacy leads to these kind of weird results. And the fact that then we're kind of jumping in, you know, head first without thinking about what it means to to demand algorithmic disgorgement or deletion or whatever, um, seems really dangerous.
1: It does seem dangerous. I mean, I don't think the FTC is jumping in, you know, completely with their eyes closed here. Um, and I have been reading some interesting articles and watching some fun talks by some of the FTC commissioners on this. Rebecca Slaughter has done some really great work here, um, just conceptualizing this. And I think specifically on the FTC case, they frame it as algorithmic disgorgement, kind of like the idea that, you know, a business that has improperly enriched themselves with something, right? Should have to disgorge those profits. Um, and in that circumstance, it makes a little more sense because you think of it specifically as a consumer protection type of issue, right? There was a business, it got profits, it should not have gotten from things it didn't deserve to access, and now it should give back those profits. I think that kind of makes sense theoretically, right? Um, When you start linking it to privacy protection and not just consumer protection, then it does get harder. Like you mentioned, like what is this is such um, um, an academic big question. What is privacy, right? Like, that's <laughs> right. really hard to answer. Um, and that's something, right, where you t- think about things like if there's an algorithmic shadow, if there's some imprint of your data on a machine learning system, even after your data has been deleted, what does that mean? Like, Does that matter to you? Um, I, I will say I workshopped this paper and a number of people said it did not matter to them at all. Um, And that was one huge feedback I got, which was people didn't see what the point was. Like, why does it matter if a machine learning system used my data? Um, Especially if there's, say, like a facial recognition algorithm that used billions of faces and only one photo of my face is in there, what's the impact on me, right? And that is something that, you know, it's kind of a privacy issue, but it's also just an issue in terms of, you know, what are our ethics for technology, right? Like, what do we think should be right to do with someone else's data, um someone else's photo or just tech generally,
0: yeah, yeah, well, that that opens up a whole other other box yeah, of what issues. do we do
1: with tech, Mike? What's the right way to go about <laughs> regulating technology?
0: yeah, and data and, yeah, and all privacy data. well we can solve it all, mm-hmm. right <laughs> um, wow, okay, um yeah, i mean i I think these these are really big issues and and I appreciate you raising a bunch of them in this paper. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know that we have answers to them yet.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, personally, I just, it's we've already talked about why it's bad, but I still just think back to that creepy feeling. And I think there's is right. something worthwhile in saying that we have a sort of visceral reaction to kinds of privacy invasions. Uh, like I talk about this sometimes in terms of thinking about another area in which I do some research, which is biometric privacy. So privacy for mm-hmm. data that relates to your body or comes from your body, I think we feel ickier about biometric privacy invasions than we do about some other forms of privacy invasions. Like if someone misuses your, you know, your genomic data, um, that feels mm-hmm. worse than if someone took, I don't know, your email password or your credit card number. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's still a little worthwhile, even though, like we talked about, I don't know how to quantify that. I don't know what the law should do about that but I think there's that little bit of visceral feeling that I don't think we should totally discount.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it gets even, it gets even more complicated in in different ways when, when you're talking about like, I, I, I even have a, I have problems with the idea of like your data, uh, which implies a, a sort of level of ownership or kind of a property right to data that I'm not sure is, is correct. Um, But, like, you can see it more with, like, the genomic data, which is, like, literally inside you, right? (laughs) You know, that is not something that you are broadcasting widely. Um, You know, where I think it gets a lot more complicated and a lot more iffy is when it's, like, people are arguing that, like, things they have said publicly is their own private data and therefore, you know, must be, you know, they, they must have the right to delete it or or con- control it in some way. Um, that gets to free speech issues, obviously. But then there's also sort of that, that middle ground and that, you know, again, getting to like edge cases <laughs> that are not edge cases, but the sort of large gray middle, um, you know, things like what you shop for, right? So I always find this to be an interesting example, too, because, you know, in theory, You know, if you go to a regular supermarket and you're using like a shopping card, you're providing the company with information. In fact, you know, even if they know your name just from your credit card, whatever, they can collect data on you. Um, And some people find that somewhat problematic. But is that your data? Like, is it, you know, what you bought? Is that your data? And then, you, you know, you can take it to other levels where it's like, you know, people can see what you buy. Like when you go to a store, other people in the store can see what you buy. And I've used this example in the past. So people who are regular listeners may be getting sick of it, but like, you know, that is a privacy violation to some extent. Like you see what's in my shopping cart you can see what I buy, but like the number of people who see it is very low and the likelihood of anyone being able to do anything nefarious or problematic with the fact that you can see what's in my shopping cart is really low. And the benefit to me of being able to buy stuff and put it into my shopping cart is pretty high. And so like the trade off there is totally worth it. Um, and yet like, You know, people do feel a sort of privacy right over things that they like put into their Amazon shopping cart or whatever and wouldn't necessarily want that broadcast to the world or or used in other ways. And they feel a little uncomfortable about how Amazon uses it sometimes. But I'm not sure exactly where the difference is. Um, And so all of that gets into like, you know, what would happen if in this sort of algorithmic destruction world, if someone determined that like, Amazon's use of their purchasing data was illegally collected, and therefore Amazon had to destroy their recommendation algorithm because it was trained on that data.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the extreme, right? But that could happen. Yeah. Let's say Amazon, right. you know, improperly collected data of children under thirteen, or something, right? Sure. There's a COPPA violation, and now if Amazon has to delete all of their recommendations that ever use any of the data right. on children, you know, in this group. Um, that could be huge. That could be a huge undertaking yeah. for Amazon to like redo everything. Um, yeah, that would be so that again, I really don't know how that's playing out on um, a practical level. Um, but I'm also really interested in this shopping cart example. And now I'm and apologies if you've discussed it at length already with your <laughs> listeners. Um, but I do think there's something interesting in that. Right. Um, because we have different expectations of privacy. Um, and I'm always right. concerned about this because a lot of our laws in the U.S. talk about expectations of privacy, um, you know, both, you know, in a consumer protection level, but also in constitutional law, we think about things like, did you have a subjective expectation of privacy and what you were doing? Were you acting as if you expected privacy? And was there an right. objective um, expectation of privacy? What, did you have, you know, some sort of social norm about the space you were in and that's, So great, um, except that I think that our expectations are continually changing, right? So I find that super problematic um, if we just base it all on expectations and norms, um, because we are continually having, you know, more and more privacy invasions. um, And if we just expect less privacy due to more privacy invasions, then we just find ourselves on a slippery slope towards less and less privacy. Um, So that's a little problematic. Um, On the other hand, you know, I also... Think that sometimes I don't mind, for example, the fact that Amazon can see my shopping cart. I would mind right. maybe if my like next door neighbor could see my shopping cart, right? Depending on what I'm buying. Right. Um, but Amazon, right. you know, that's fine. They're facilitating the exchange. Um, you right. know, they're sending ads to me based on things that may be helpful. So I do yeah. think there's something to be said in terms of, you know, what, um, you know, like Helen Nissenbaum has talked about, like contextual integrity. Um, it's this idea of different expectations and types of privacy and privacy requirements per different context, right? Um, and companies yep. have been trying to do that, can try to do that. Um, and that's a sort of broader conception of privacy we can think about. But it, it doesn't, I don't know, it's hard to say if that really protects us.
0: <laughs> I mean, what does that even mean? Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's that's where you get to the problems, right? I mean, part of my argument with the, the shopping cart example is how much of this is context dependent, right? I mean, so I talk about like, for me, it's not that big a deal to, to go to the, the, the grocery store and put stuff in my shopping cart if somebody sees it. Not a big deal. But like if i were Justin Bieber it might be a different situation right you know somebody who is is famous where you have paparazzi trying to see everything that they do and make a story out of it you know depending on what they're buying that might be a story that could have a negative impact and that is a privacy violation i think most people would sort of recognize that but how is that different than than me it's it's entirely the context of it right like nobody cares what i'm buying right which which is 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 part of the point but it's like how do you bake context into that into any sort of rules and setup in a way that you know isn't like creating a special class for for like well justin bieber gets special protections as compared to everybody else that doesn't feel right either you know so um you know t- to me like you know the argument that i've always made and again i apologize to regular listeners of the podcaster for this a million times is is that like so much of this is is about context and trade-offs and like that's really hard to put down into any sort of you know official policy because you have to look at each scenario differently and that's you know you can't do that at scale right yes, that's and so true. yeah anyways um This is a great paper. It's obviously gotten me thinking on a whole bunch of different directions, um, got, you know, set me off on all these tangents thinking about this stuff. This discussion has done the same for me. I'm thinking about all sorts of different ideas. I think I have like 10 different ideas for potential tech blog post based on this conversation. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, for people listening, uh, I really recommend you go read the paper, uh, algorithmic destruction by Tiffany Lee. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes and I'm sure you can search and, and, and find it up. There will be lots more to discuss on this. And I know that, uh, Tiffany you will continue to to think about this and write about this and to drive the necessary conversation forward so I appreciate that as well uh so thank you for for joining us on the podcast
1: great thanks for having me this was a lot of fun for me too
0: <laughs> Cool and uh thanks everyone for listening as well and we'll be back next week don't up to them someone get Rapper, shovel, a dick of the